This week, a lecture about battling nature in Korea and Vietnam. Boise State University professor Lisa Brady talks about how chemical agents were used during the Korean and Vietnam Wars to destroy the landscape and infrastructure. She argues that during this time, the U.S. military began to see foreign landscapes as an enemy rather than an obstacle. This is a quote. South Vietnam is covered with dense forests, jungle, and mangrove. Utilization of this natural concealment has afforded the enemy great tactical and logistical advantages vis-a-vis allied forces. A paramount military problem from the outset, therefore, has been the difficulty of locating the enemy. Without information about enemy dispositions, our forces cannot exploit their advantage of superior firepower. Professor Brady also describes the reasons for various defoliation missions, as well as the long-term damage to both the environment and the locals. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about um, the wars in Korea and Vietnam from an environmental history perspective. Many of you are quite well aware of the military side of things, how the wars progressed, um, but I think it's very important for us to think about how nature is impacted by and shapes warfare. And these are two very important wars in American history. Um, not only because Korea is often considered to be the forgotten war and so many of its veterans feel like it doesn't get talked about enough, um, but also because it was the first hot war in the Cold War in which the United States really did go to war with communist enemies, um, in this case, North Korea and uh, the People's Volunteer Army in China, and because it really does impact our, our world today. Korea is one of our most important allies, one of our most important trading partners, and so our involvement in Korea was a very important moment in U.S. history. And of course, Vietnam is um, very important for its role in activism and in getting uh, many of the younger people in the United States involved in politics, involved in protest, and demonstrating that the United States government is very much influenced by uh, its constituents and responsive to it. But we're going to focus on the environment of both of these places. And uh, we're going to start here with Korea. So this says Kumsu Gangsan, and that means land of the morning calm. That is what Koreans consider to be the phrase that best captures the essence of Korea and the Korean Peninsula. And the war that we're going to be talking about, as you all know, the fighting took place between 1950 and 1953 for U.S. and U.N. allied troops. The war went on much longer before that. It began really in 1945-47 when there were internal conflicts between those who wanted to have a communist government and those who wanted to have a liberal capitalist government. And of course, as you all know, the war still continues. It's only governed by an armistice, not a peace treaty, and so those years there are really only reflective of UN military involvement in an actual combat situation. So the map there is of Korea, the Korean Peninsula. Tigers are very important to Korean people in their culture and in their history and their tradition. And for centuries, Koreans have seen their peninsula in the shape of a tiger. And so that's why I've got that map up there rather than a boring political map. Here's the more boring political maps of the Korean Peninsula. And I have these here to show you what the climate is like in Korea. Again, we're taking the war from an environmental history perspective. And so it's very important for us to know 
what are the types of weather patterns and temperatures and the kinds of conditions that U.S. forces faced when they get over to Korea. On the left there is the average low temperatures in the heart of winter. And they range from at the the very tip there, let's see if I can get that right there, uh, about minus four degrees on average in that part of North Korea. And down here in the southern areas, it's more about 36. So just hovering right around freezing on average from December through February. The summer temperatures there are much warmer. It is a climate where you've got a bimodal climate, very, very cold and dry in the winter, very, very hot and subject to monsoons in the summer. And again, you can see ranging from about 64 degrees here in the northern parts of Korea all the way to the 80s down here in the southern part. Keep in mind that these are averages, averages. And so you can have temperature ranges in the peninsula, along the peninsula, anywhere from double digits below zero Fahrenheit to triple digits above zero in the summer. The peninsula itself is about 84,000 square miles total, about the same area as Utah. And it is 600 miles in length and at its narrowest, right where the DMZ is, right around in here, it's about 120 miles in width. Keep in mind, though, that the DMZ extends out into the marine and estuary um, areas outside in the water areas there. And so the DMZ is actually about 155 miles in total width. 70% of the peninsula is mountainous. So it is a very rugged terrain. Now, keep in mind, we're getting here We're getting on to talking about military experiences here. So all of this is just leading up to giving you a sense of what the kind of terrain and climate that U.S. soldiers and Marines faced when they were on the ground. So 70% of the peninsula is mountainous. About 20% is uh, suitable for agriculture, and most of that is in the south. Now, the mountains today are heavily forested with mixed-growth forests. They had been previous to the war as well. But as I'll show you in many of the pictures, the war devastated the forests, undermined the stability of the mountainsides, and created long-lasting environmental implications for the peninsula and for the people who live there. Now, its location is... uh, Here's just a picture of some of the mountains that are there. Um, Its location is really at the crossroads of Asia. It has three very powerful... uh, Uh, nations surrounding it, China, Russia, and Japan, all of which had designs on the Korean peninsula. At At many points in Korea's history, it has been the object of conquest. As early as uh, the 16th century, in between 1592 and 1597, one of the most strong daimyo of Japan, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, uh, attempted to conquer the peninsula. In 1904-1905, Russia and Japan fought over control of the peninsula and its resources. That ended with Japan getting um, control over Korea and eventually in 1910-1911 making Korea into an official colony. So Korea has had a long history of conflict on its territory. And the conflict that we're going to be talking about, of course, though, is 1950-1953, the UN war in Korea. So the next several slides, I just want to demonstrate 
uh, most of the military activity on the peninsula, in part to show how it ranged all the way across. So the war officially begins on June 25th, 1950, when North Korean forces move across the DMZ. It was not the DMZ at that point. It was a temporary demarcation line between the northern government and the southern government in the hopes that at some point soon the Korean people would be able to elect a single government. In any case, the North Korean army moves past across the the, um, demarcation line and captures Seoul and moves into South Korean territory. Within a few weeks, the North Koreans have moved all the way down to what is called the Pusan perimeter. So they have all but eliminated the South Korean army and its ability to uh, retaliate against them. And this is what brings the United Nations into the war. September 15th, we have Operation Chromite. Some of you might be familiar with that. This is MacArthur's quite brilliant plan to, rather than pushing entirely by land and trying to push the North Korean army back into North Korean territory, but to do a marine landing at Incheon, which is just there near Seoul, and to essentially act as a pincer movement um, to capture North Korean troops in South Korea and force a, a compromise or a surrender. Um, they are successful in that, and by October of that year, you have UN forces, South Korean forces, US forces, and other UN um, troops moving up towards the border with China. Uh, they move up to the Yalu River and push the North Korean forces all the way back up to their very northern border. So this is moving back and forth across the peninsula in a very rapid pace. Lots of devastation in the wake because they've got lots of artillery, tanks, um, aerial bombardments. And in fact, I'll read a, a um, description of an, inter- an aerial bombardment um, later on in the lecture. But it's, again, just important to know that this war was not stationary in its first year. It went back and forth, back and forth. So the devastation was widespread all across, uh, all across the peninsula. So in 1951, January, UN forces are forced to retreat. Um, This is in part because Chinese forces are um, now involved in the war. This is not, according to China, an official Chinese government force. This is the People's Volunteer Army. Um, Many millions of Chinese troops who uh, are there to support their communist comrades in North Korea, that's how it's described by the Chinese, move across the Yalu River and into um, Korea to enter into the fight. So, again, the North Koreans and the communist troops move back beyond the demarcation line and capture Seoul again. Then, in mid, well, early um, spring 1951, we start to see the beginnings of stalemate. And this happens to be along the same line where the DMZ is today. So this is a very active part of the war um, where you have troops from both sides going back and forth across that line, fighting over hills, fighting over outposts, engaging in mountain warfare. It is incredibly difficult and tragic for um, many of the, the men involved in this fighting. This is where a lot of them lost their lives here. And so again, I show these slides just to show how much of the peninsula was affected by the war. 
and how much of its climate and geography U.S. ground forces encountered, because we really are today just focused on the U.S. experience here. I'm not going to go into talking about um, the 17 nations that fought in the war. We're really going to focus on the experiences of American troops. So as we've talked about in this class before, we've talked a little bit about Karl von Clausewitz and his principles of war. And one of them is that war on paper, such as these kinds of maps and drawings and strategies by the main decision makers, is not the same kind of war on the ground. Weather and terrain, of course, are key elements in any military decision. Military historians have not adequately addressed how these things affect the individuals and how they affect the landscape of the places where the war is fought. They have certainly done a good job of explaining the importance of weather and terrain to war-making decisions, but I think that we need to look at the wars from an environmental perspective to understand the, the intimate sorts of ramifications that these con conflicts take and have. Um, so many of the soldiers and Marines that end up in Korea, especially in the first part of the war, are veterans of World War II. So they are combat-experienced soldiers, Marines, airmen, and sailors. Um, they understood what the battle would, what battle was and what was expected of them, but what they could not anticipate was what they would face on the ground in Korea. Most of these men hadn't heard of Korea, didn't know where it was. Many of them were not aware of the long-standing political animosities between Korea, Japan, Russia. All of this is going to be a new experience for them. Certainly the terrain and the weather was very different from what they had experienced. For example, Master Sergeant James Hart, who was in F Company of the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Regiment Combat Team, wrote... In the early part of February 1951, we went into combat. At the time, I thought I was in pretty good physical condition, but I found out differently. Korea is just one hill and mountain after the other, and since we also carried about 80 pounds of equipment, soldiering in Korea was pretty exhausting. This from someone who had served in World War II and was used to battle and the rigors of battle and the rigors of being a soldier. Sergeant Albert Snyder who was in the 7th Infantry Division, noted that, quote, in mid-April 1951, a few days after I arrived, two men in item company, I company, which is what he was assigned to, were seriously wounded during a firefight with enemy troops. I wasn't involved in the firefight, but Harold Newcomb and I were assigned to accompany the two wounded soldiers and four Korean litter bearers as an armed uh, escort against enemy guerrillas operating in the area. So, Snyder had to take over when the Koreans became too exhausted to continue to carry the litters, the, the wounded men. And he said that the terrain was very rough, and I found the job of serving as litter bearer utterly exhausting. And one more here, Corporal Harold L. Malhusen of the 1st Marine Division said, one thing never changed in Korea, the hills. They all looked the same, and there was always one more we had to take. And this, again, is especially true when the war becomes a stalemate and they're fighting over little bits of territory, sometimes just 100 yards apart are these enormous trenches and they're really just going back and forth, capturing a hill, retaking a hill, losing the hill, retaking the hill. It's just this constant climbing and going down the hills and fighting over these mountaintops. It became incredibly exhausting. Weather too, so here's a picture of the terrain 
the mountainous terrain there in Korea. And here is just a, a hint at the kinds of weather that some of the U.S. soldiers and Marines experienced there. Uh, weather, of course, was, was very important to the experiences of these soldiers. In winter, especially in the, early in the war when the troops are not actually well supplied, they had used troop uh, supplies left over from World War II, intended for climates and places not like Korea. So they had boots that were not appropriate for climbing mountains or for withstanding deep, deep freezing uh, cold. They also had uh, overcoats and their uniforms were not well suited for the cold climate of Korea either. So one uh, soldier, oh, sorry, a Marine actually, first, Private First Class Bruce D. Lippert, um, he entered Korea in March 1952, so in the time of the stalemate. And he said, like everyone else who served in Korea, I have a lasting memory of the cold. We wore heavy parkas, thermal Mickey Mouse boots, and all kinds of other stuff. So he came in after they finally got the supplies that they needed to help them withstand the cold. But, he said, I still couldn't get warm during the winter months. At the same time, I found the summer heat oppressive, mostly because of the high humidity. So in addition to being under fire, in addition to the rigors and the, the problems of warfare, of combat, they had to deal with these climate issues in Korea as well. He went on to say, during the night, the Chinese repeatedly blew their bugles, and he's talking about a, a wintertime conflict, even when they had no intention of attacking our lines. It was just one of their gimmicks to make us jumpy. At Christmas time of 1952, they even played Christmas carols over their loudspeakers to make us homesick, I presume. We heard Silent Night and all the other well-known carols drifting out over no man's land, freezing our butts off thousands of miles from home. So unfortunately for them, the carols didn't make them feel um, like they were in a uh, a nice, friendly place. It just made them feel more homesick and made the climate and the conditions of war that much worse. So one of the most famous battles of the Korean conflict, especially for U.S. Marines, uh, is the Chosin Reservoir, or Chongjin Reservoir, as the map labels it up there. This um, engagement be occurs between November and December of 1950, it is an extremely cold winter in Korea that year. And there is just this um, very serious engagement here between uh, U.S. troops, U.S. Marines, and uh, Chinese people volunteer forces. Tens and tens of thousands of them engaged against thousands of um, Marines. So according to Corporal Harold L. Mulehausen, who was in A Company in the 7th Regiment of the 1st Marine Division, who served there at Chosin Reservoir, he said, with fighting all around us, we remained on 50% watch. At about 1 o'clock that night, we were ordered to move back about 200 yards. This time, we set up our 3.5-inch rockets in a field next to the road. We tried to dig in again, but the ground was frozen so hard we had little success. There were firefights everywhere, so they put us on 100% watch. Somehow, we managed to avoid contact with the enemy that night, but we sure as hell didn't avoid contact with the cold. By morning, the thermometer had dropped to 30 degrees below zero with a strong wind blowing. So they're in this valley area here, surrounded by mountains and faced by tens of thousands of hostile troops. He recalled, as they were moving through the area, 
and, and on their retreat in December. Quote, we moved down the hill slowly, slipping and sliding. Then we just walked and walked, sometimes in snow that came up to our knees. Those poor devils in the front of the column got the honor of breaking the path for the rest of us. And he concluded his memoir with, quote, no one had to tell us how serious the situation was. We walked by one foxhole that contained three dead Chinese soldiers, all frozen to death at their posts. So again, here we've got a situation, terrible in the best of times, when you have enemy troops engaging with you, attempting to take over the territory that you control. But you've got the added problems of environmental obstacles, the cold, the snow, the wind, poor supplies, especially in 1950, when these Marines did not have proper winter clothing. The Marines withdrew from the Chosin area in December 1950. Those who came out were henceforth known as the Chosin Few, which is a nice little um, play on their, their words, or their, their motto of the few, the proud. Um, and according to Alan Millett, who is the foremost historian of the Korean War, the Chosin Reservoir campaign was a geographic victory for the Chinese. Nevertheless, the campaign ruined the CPF, or CPVF 9th Army Group, in which, or which did not return to the front until March 1951. And that battle convinced the United Nations Command that Allied ground troops could defeat Chinese armies, however numerous. So this is an important moment for Marine history, for U.S. history, and for um, the Korean War itself. Because here is an example of, despite all the obstacles, U.N. forces could, in fact, um, if not be victorious, at least hold at bay numbers of the enemy that are hundreds of times their own. Millette continues, the Chinese have remained vague on their losses in the battle, but according to their records and UNC estimates, those put the 9th Army Group's casualties, the Chinese casualties, in the range of 40 to 80,000. When one counts combat deaths and wounded, plus deaths and incapacity from the cold. The 1st Marine Division lost 4,385 men to combat. And here's the important point here for us, 7,338 to the cold. So almost twice the number of casualties due to the climate than to the combat. Other 10th Corps losses amounted to some 6,000 Americans and Koreans, the others that were engaged in that particular encounter. So Korea's climate, Korea's terrain, as much an enemy, as much an obstacle as the enemy forces, the human forces. So I don't want to just talk about how nature is an agent in this war, because certainly humans act as agents in war as well. And at times here, in the next slide I'm going to show you, they are actually attacking their human enemies as well as the landscape itself. And so the landscape becomes part of their strategy, part of their operational tactics. They have to obliterate the cover from behind which their enemies can hide and launch attacks. So if Korea as a place, as a physical entity, posed challenges and as, was as much an enemy to U.S. troops as the North Korean and Chinese forces, along with their fellow U.N. troops, um, U.S. forces left a lasting mark on Korea's landscape. And here's the, how they do this. They have these modern technologies, right? They've got chemical agents. They have 
tanks, they have artillery, they have airplanes with massive capacity for carpet bombing, and that is what happens in Korea. Modern weapons of war um, denuded the peninsula's hills and mountains of forests and other vegetation, which led to erosion, which in turn contributed to the siltation of rivers and damage to riverine ecosystems and to the flooding and destruction of Korea's agricultural land, which, remember, is only about 20% of the peninsula itself. So huge amounts of food have to come from very small amounts of land. And so any kind of destruction, temporary or permanent, is going to have an impact on the ability of civilians to maintain any kind of um, stable lifestyle during the conflict or after it, as well as getting food for the troops, because not all the food came from rations. Some of it came from um, taking it from the land as well. So the next several slides uh, provide some illustrations of this. This picture here is of a white phosphorus attack. White phosphorus is a chemical agent that when it uh, comes into contact with the air, it becomes fire. It basically catches on fire. And anything that it touches also becomes engulfed in flames. That includes vegetation and, of course, human beings. And certainly there were many uh, Chinese and North Koreans who were um, afflicted by white phosphorus uh, in these kinds of attacks. Uh, napalm was also used widely in Korea. And it too, like white phosphorus, was used to clear forest areas, vegetation, foliage, so that the enemy does not, did not have a place to hide. They had less cover. Aerial bombing. This was probably the most widespread agent of destruction in uh, the Korean War. This image here is um, a post-bombing reconnaissance picture. And here, oops, sorry, wrong button. Here you see a mountain ridge, sort of the white area there. These areas here are streams or estuaries, um, not estuaries, but streams or flooded areas along rivers and um, paddies, rice paddies that have been flooded as well. All of the little white pockmarks all through there are craters from bombs that had been dropped from UN uh, planes. So again, widespread destruction. That's just one very small area, and you can see the amount of damage. And when the mountains are pretty high and they've got these pockmarks, it takes away the foliage, it takes away the trees, which keeps the soil in place. And when these mountains are up against rivers, those rivers become saturated with the runoff from the mountains, and this creates um, serious problems for agriculture, for getting clean water, um, and, of course, for the fish and other animals that live in the streams. This is just one picture of um, the mountains of ordnance, artillery ordnance, that was used during the war. I don't know if you can see them, but right there are three men, three U.S. soldiers, And so you can get a a sense of the scale of all of these spent um, shells. It was a massive amount. So all of that artillery and ordnance onto a landscape. Here you can see the trees that are just utterly shattered from both artillery and uh, aerial bombing. I'm going to read a fairly extensive quote here um, by an airman who actually witnessed one of these Uh, nighttime bombings of the Korean landscape. This comes from uh, 
Captain John Thornton, who was a U.S. Army helicopter pilot, who on April 19, 1951, witnessed a U.N. nighttime attack. He was a prisoner of war at the time, and this is his recollection of what happened. Suddenly, as if on cue, the nearby hills were brilliantly illuminated by flares from the U.N. night bombers. Their flickering glow cast spooky shadows and dancing forms across the rugged terrain. Then, like mythical griffins, night fighters swooped in from the gloom. Flying above the flares, they shattered distant, hidden men in firestorms of machine gun fire and rockets. Tumbling napalm canisters fell from the planes like loose parts. Splattering across the ground in searing flame, they lit up the hills with an even greater intensity. The attacking fighters were met by red tracer rounds arcing skyward from an anti-aircraft emplacement that groped for a target in the night. As the dying flares descended on their miniature parachutes and flickered out, they allowed the beleaguered mountains to retreat momentarily into the safety of darkness, their existence revealed only by the open wounds burning on their slopes. Yes, Michael. Um, were they able to recycle all these uh, shells, or did, is it just waste at this point that they just have left over? That's a good question. So these shells were not just waste. They would actually be recycled into um, a, a variety of different uses. Uh, it depended on who actually got control of them, how they were used, but the U.S. Army would um, actually just recycle them. Yes, please. Another um, question. Michaela. Just going back a couple slides, how are the white phosphorus attacks carried out? So these are um, white phosphorus basically was put into canisters that then they would shoot from, um, honestly, I don't know if it was from handheld guns or from tank artillery. I, I would have to check on that for you. But in any case, they're, they're shot into canisters, and when they would land, the canisters would break open, the white phosphorus would come out and essentially explode, light on fire. Yes, please. Yeah, this uh, white phosphorus, I read a small article. It also caused blindness. Is this an after effect uh, from the, the uh, phosphorus after it burns? Is this then the after effect from it? Or yeah, so the question is, um, does white phosphorus cause blindness um, by its explosion, by the, the flare, or perhaps from some other reaction? I actually don't know. Um, my guess would be that it's, it's either from the, the flash of the white phosphorus, the explosion of it, or more likely from the, the, um, the burning, actually, that the eyes were burned or affected by the heat from the, the fire that the white phosphorus generated. Yeah, Brittany. So a lot of these, like, things that have been used in Korea were also used in Vietnam. So why is it that all this environmentalism stuff came up in Vietnam and not Korea? An excellent question. Okay. A very good question. And if you don't mind, I will answer it in just a couple of slides. It's, I wish you'd asked it maybe two more slides in because it would have been a perfect segue. <laughs> yeah, ask it a little bit later. But you're right. These were also, I mean, these, these were also used in World War II. So Vietnam is not the first time that these kinds of chemical agents were used in war, but we'll talk about why Vietnam becomes such a flashpoint for protest against them. Um, okay, so just a couple more pictures to, to give you the sense of the landscape damage to Korea by these just three years, right? Well, three years on the calendar, four years of actual by months fighting. Um, 
This is a picture of Old Baldy in 1953. This is on the main line of resistance where the DMZ currently exists. And it earned its name, according to Lieutenant Pendleton Woods, who was um, in the Army, the 45th Infantry Division, quote, because of the heavy fighting had destroyed all of its vegetation. So this had been a vegetated mountain. It had been covered in forests and scrub, and now it looks like this in 1953. Private First Class James Red Davis, who was in the 3rd Infantry Division, said that most of the fighting took place on outposts, ugly treeless hills and mountains located well in front of our main line of resistance. While the communists lost thousands of men trying to capture these outposts, we also lost a lot of men, also lost a lot of men trying to defend them. This is the kind of territory that they were fighting in. And here is a picture of the main line um, of resistance, the MLR, or the 38th parallel. This is actually a picture of Colombian troops. Um, Colombia was also involved as part of the UN forces. Um, this is a picture of their trenches. And you can see their trenches cut along, and this was the, um, where the men would take cover as uh, shells and artillery would be coming in. Now, this looks fairly dry now, but... Remember, Korea has monsoonal seasons, and in the spring and summer, it rains buckets. And so these trenches would be filled with rain and mud, and it's very slippery, and they're on very steep slopes. So that's a big danger for many of the men who are um, positioned at the, the main line of resistance. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the casualties of war, and then we'll get to Brittany's question about Vietnam. U.S. deaths are at about 36,500. Most of you have probably heard 54,000 for Korea, but about 10 years ago, the Pentagon came out with a clarification about those numbers in that 54,000 is the total number of casualties during the war years of all servicemen worldwide. So just like if you are in the service during a conflict, you become a veteran of that war, whether or not you actually served in the war. That's where those numbers come from. It's looking at the war and the servicemen who were um, wounded or killed during the war in service to the United States. So the actual casualties. Yes, Rob. Just a, a question on the, uh, on the trenches. Oh, yes, um, sure. When you said that they'd filled up with water and mud, um, obviously that means mosquitoes. Was DDT still kind of the the main, uh, main use for, for that there and that? Yes, absolutely. So DDT was still in use during the Korean War, certainly for mosquito abatement and um, lice uh, uh, control, especially because most of the men didn't have the opportunity to bathe very often. Um, they were very far away from any kind of towns. Much of Korea at this time was very agricultural, and so it would be little hamlets or maybe a few houses. They didn't have running water, so they didn't have the infrastructure to support any kind of um, hygiene. They would go into rivers and streams and lakes and things like that, but only when they found them. So, yeah, DDT would have been one of the, the major um, tools to fight the the infestations that they would have faced. Yeah, that and smoke. I mean, using fires as a um, way to get the mosquitoes away from you too. That was also one of their, their tools, strategies. Okay, so this, the um, casualties, U.S. deaths, 36,516. Um, wounded, 92,134. 
So a total of 128,650. Um, the missing still at uh, nearly 5,000 at 4,759. They sound like very specific and accurate numbers, but of course there's always a little bit of um, uncertainty when it comes to the actual numbers of dead and wounded just because we can't always keep very good records. Um, that's just the U.S. side. South Korean, there were uh, 217,000 military casualties approximately, and at least a million civilian casualties, killed, missing, and wounded. North Korean casualties, about 406,000 military and about 600,000 civilian, according to their records. And the Chinese suffered about 600,000 casualties in the Korean War. Of course, while this is definitely a human tragedy, war always is a human tragedy, there are other casualties as well, as I've tried to demonstrate in the last several slides. The landscape was a casualty. It suffered tremendously during the war. Forests, rivers, lakes, streams, all sorts of uh, the natural landscape was affected by the combat. Korea's infrastructure, what there was, was utterly decimated. And so that leaves sewers, no running water, all of these things that are then going to contribute to post-war disease, malnutrition. Of course, the agricultural lands were also affected. So now I am going to turn to Vietnam so that we can talk a little bit about a, a contrasting experience for U.S. servicemen. The servicemen certainly experienced a different geography and a different climate, but here is where we have the difference. And in answer to Brittany's question, here we've got an actual strategy of attacking the landscape, especially through the use of chemical agents. So while most of these instances in Korea were tactical uses of chemical agents to enhance um, the U.S. forces ability to identify and um, view their enemy, it was not a strategy. It was not a large-scale strategy. And it is in Vietnam where we see the strategy of using chemical defoliants on a wide scale come into place. And that difference of scale and of use of this particular chemical, Agent Orange, and the other rainbow agents that were used during the war, really generates an outcry among scientists and among civilians back in the United States. And that's, that's where um, we have the difference. Yes, Victor. Chemical weapons and warfare? 1925 is the Geneva uh, Convention on Chemical Weapons. So how are chemical agents used justifiably with the United, from the United Nations? How do they get around that not being able to use? So the, the question is, how does the United States get around the Geneva Convention? We didn't sign it until 1975. So we were not under the restrictions of the Geneva Convention, even though it was actually U.S. citizens and um, U.S. congressmen who wanted to put the Geneva Protocol into place in response to the problems of World War I and the use of mustard gas and other chemical weapons during that war. That's the other key element of this. Weapons versus agents. You've noticed that I've been very careful to call these chemical agents, not chemical weapons. 
because chemical weapons are mustard gas, nerve gas, nerve agents, things like that, that are used against human personnel. Chemical agents are used against non-human aspects in, in the strategy. And so it's against nature, not against humans. And so that's how we get around using those kinds of things. But during Vietnam, it was not an issue because we were not a signatory to the, the Geneva Protocol or the Geneva Convention. Sorry. Yeah, Brittany. So how does using chemical agents make a winning strategy when there's not like a clear definition of like gaining territory or like fighting for territory won or lost kind of thing? Yeah, so the idea behind the use of defoliants in Vietnam is that that jungle right there is an easy place for the enemy to hide, right? And so if you can get rid of the jungle, the enemy has to come out and face you on the battlefield. So it's not necessarily gaining control over territory, but it's denying cover to your enemy troops. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment as well. You're just always anticipating me. No, that's good. And actually, I'm going to talk about the Geneva Convention too. You guys just, you have great questions. All right, so this is a, a map here of Vietnam. It's this long, thin, sort of S-shaped nation here, um, often described as a descending dragon. There's actually um, a, a bay up here, Holong Bay, uh, that is called Descending Dragon Bay, and it's got this wonderful mythology about dragons coming down to help the Vietnamese um, ward off an invasion by their enemies and dropping all these gems and pearls and other things in the, the bay, and that's how you get these lovely um, rock outcroppings in the water. But the, the nation itself, you can kind of see it, right? The dragon coming down here with its mouth, that's its tail fanning out. Anyway, I think it's a lovely idea to think of Vietnam as the descending dragon. Um, so... What I want to focus on here is less on the soldiers' experiences and more on this shift in strategy by the United States to see the environment itself as the enemy, not just as an obstacle, but as the enemy and as cover for the enemy. I do want to show a picture here of um, U.S. soldiers here and North Vietnamese soldiers here in a very similar landscape. These are pictures from the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and here the U.S. soldiers are, of course, trying to um, destroy the Ho Chi Minh Trail and to flesh out, flesh out uh, the North Vietnamese enemy there. And these are North Vietnamese um, troops who are using the Ho Chi Minh Trail as their supply line. And, you know, it's the same conditions, but clearly they don't have the same experiences in them, right? The North Vietnamese are very clearly... Um, familiar with the terrain, with the jungles, with how to um, deal with the, the, the weather and the water and, and everything in the region, and the U.S. soldiers simply are not. They just did not get that kind of training, and um, most of them aren't there long enough to get um, experience with it. Most of them had one-year tours of duty and would be toured out. So the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was actually a series of trails, that was used by um, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong um, in a way of supplying their allies in the South. Um, and it was really considered to be this amazing feat of engineering because it's carved out of pretty serious jungle terrain. 
Um, and as I say there, it's the uh, greatest feat of military engineering of the 20th century because this wasn't done with uh, mechanized vehicles. This was done, a lot of it cut down and created by hand. So the Ho Chi Minh Trail becomes a major priority for U.S. forces. What they wanted to do was make it unusable. And they attempted to destroy the trail by a variety of means. First was to create um, storm clouds through seeding clouds with silver iodide, trying to wash out the road because it also goes through very rugged terrain. They thought if they could wash out areas of the road, the Viet Cong could not get their supplies down um, through the Ho Chi Minh Trail to their allies in the south. That didn't work very well, as you might imagine. They also tried to use what was called a chemical soap. They would get big, huge burlap bags of this chemical agent, drop it all along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and wait for natural rain to come and create this soapy mess that they also hoped would wash out the trail. The Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army were pretty hip to the fact that that's what was going on, and they would just simply go out and they would scoop up all the chemical agent and move it away, and so it never became much of an issue. So these kinds of things did not work for the U.S. Army. They could not create weather. They could not use the weather as an ally in order to get rid of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So what did they turn to? They turned to bombs there, and they turned to Agent Orange in a lot of other places in Vietnam. So here's one report, an official report, on um, the operation which would come to be known as Agent Ran- or, sorry, Operation Ranch Hand. This is a quote. South Vietnam is covered with dense forests, jungle, and mangrove. Utilization of this natural concealment has afforded the enemy great tactical and logistical advantages vis-a-vis allied forces. A paramount military problem from the outset, therefore, has been the difficulty of locating the enemy. Without information about enemy dispositions, our forces cannot exploit their advantage of superior firepower. Defoliation by chemical herbicides is the principal way by which allied forces obtain visible observation of enemy forces, facilities, ambush sites, and infiltration routes. So it comes back to the point that I made earlier that this is the use of Agent Orange and other defoliants was intended to get the enemy out from behind the cover of the forests, the jungles, the mangroves, and into sight so that they could engage in military combat. Okay. Agent Orange was not the only way that the U.S. forces helped denude the landscape of uh, Vietnam. Um, It's been estimated that about 60% of Vietnam's forests were destroyed or seriously damaged by the war. And this is an example here. You can see the craters here. Those are bomb craters, artillery craters. According to geographer Joseph Hupe, although artillery bombardment was heavily utilized in the war, aerial bombardment inflicted damage to the forests and the enemy on a scale never before accomplished. Much of the damage inflicted upon the forests um, through highly explosive shrapnel producing munitions was the same as seen in previous wars. Bombs destroyed vegetation outright, tore it open with shrapnel, and left it impregnated with small pieces of shrapnel, so a lasting legacy of the war. Hupe continues, U.S. Air Force bombers in this war also widely practiced carpet bombing. 
in which B-52 bombers would fly over and lay down a blanket of bombs into an area thought to be occupied by enemy forces. The B-52 bombers led, left wide swaths of disturbance, dotting the Vietnamese landscape with millions of craters. Here is, are some of them. Typically, the bombing runs consist, consisted of 3 to 12 aircraft, each carrying 108 500-pound bombs. Huge amounts of bombs. The swath of disturbance, according to Hupi, created by such missions, saturated an area with bombs approximately half a kilometer wide and over 1,000 meters long. Conservative estimates place the number of craters left behind from these carpet bombing missions at around 26 million. That's the craters. For comparison with the previous wars of the 20th century, during World War II, a total of 2 million tons were dropped in all theaters of the war. In Korea, the total munitions dropped amounted to 1 million tons. In Indochina, in Vietnam, between 1965 and 1971, the United States dropped over 14 million tons of munitions. So ramped up the scale pretty significantly, and this was one of the effects of that. So let's get on to Operation Ranch Hand. Now, this is a video that I'm going to show you here of uh, U.S. servicemen using Agent Orange. And I have to get it at the right point. Otherwise, the first part might make you motion sick. Oh, and I also have to press play. Sorry. you can see the effects of the immediate effects of agent orange yes michael how quickly did agent orange take effect I mean, like, when, it, when they shot it out there, it didn't look like it was just instantly killing stuff. No. So how Agent Orange works is essentially it, um, it gets into the leaves. It goes onto the leaves of the mangroves, of the trees, of the, the, um, the grasses that are around there. And then it goes into the, the root system, and it kills it from within. So it's, it's not an instant sort of effect but it is uh, a long-lasting kind of effect because it, it kills the plant from within. Yes, Scott. I noticed that, like you showed, the killing of the, of the foliage. 
They yeah. showed the two. But yet, if I remember right, they were having problems with being shot at uh, by Vietnam, uh, Viet Cong rather, from, they were moving along at different rates of speed, you know, bam, bam, bam. And <clears throat> that folders may be dead, but it's still there. Wouldn't the use of, uh, like, a fire or a napalm be more productive in the sense of clearing the actual landscape? I'll show you some pictures that will um, demonstrate how effective Agent Orange is in killing the actual trees. Um, But, yes, it was an incredibly difficult mission. I mean, these guys, this was apparently, or a fairly safe one, because they didn't have enemies firing on them. But many of those who were charged with uh, deploying the Agent Orange in this manner were, of course, shot at because the enemy were along the riverbanks. Michaela. Um, so you could see it getting into the water, and so how would it affect the water and the animal life? And then also kind of getting that they were being shot at, mm-hmm. how did it affect the humans that it might have landed on? Excellent. Well, you notice that they had no protective covering, that the soldiers who were using spraying the Agent Orange had no protective covering. So Agent Orange um, is it's a, a topical toxin, and so um, you know if if you <clears throat> are exposed to it, you're going to have some long-term health effects. It wouldn't be an immediate kind of reaction to it, however. And so most of the men who were uh, spraying the Agent Orange didn't know that they were really getting themselves into serious health trouble later on. Um, in terms of getting in the water, that's an excellent point because Agent Orange is not water soluble. So it remains in the water. It only degrades um, by sunlight. Basically, the only thing is, is through sunlight. And so when it gets in the water, it stays in the water, and then you can ingest it. The animals ingest it. It gets into the food system. And there are numerous studies that indicate that the persistence of Agent Orange in hot spots all around Vietnam where it was used or where it was stored um, for future deployment in Operation Ranch Hand Um, have resulted in serious genetic and um, birth defects for the people who were exposed to it for a long period of time. Um, Cancers, other kinds of uh, internal kinds of diseases are are connected to it as well for the servicemen who were exposed to it. And, of course, the civilians and the the enemy troops that were also. So it's it's a a terrible, awful toxin um, that, yes, is a great herbicide, but again, it's persistent, and so it, it has long-lasting environmental and human health impacts. Yeah. So Operation Ranch Hand begins in 1961 as a test and really begins in earnest in 1963. That's when it's ramped up. Initially, it was, att- it was an attempt to create vegetation-free buffer zones around military bases, so as a defensive kind of um, use and along transportation routes, but it soon developed into a battlefield tactic aimed against guerrilla fighters, as we've been talking about, um, throughout the Vietnamese, uh, South Vietnamese countryside. So according to one scholar, the amount of herbicide deployed in Operation Ranch Hand shot up from approximately 1 million liters in 1964 to 10 million liters in 1966. So this was enormous use of it. I'm going to turn to Joseph Hupi again, who, is, who has written extensively on this. He says, quote, the Vietnam War differed from previous wars in the 20th century because now the destruction of key components of the country's physical environment became a deliberate military strategy. In World War I and World War II, the damage inflicted on the forests and soilscapes of the nations involved was incidental. 
in that the damage was a side effect of the intention to eliminate enemy forces. In Vietnam, a major portion of the U.S. war effort was the elimination of forests. Deforestation of the dense tropical selva was performed to eliminate cover for enemy troops, provide bases of operation, and create landing strips for aircraft and establish landing zones for troops deployed by helicopter. So, Brittany, does that answer your question? Good. Okay. So here's a picture of um, the, another way that Agent Orange was deployed um, through aerial spraying. In 1966, the acreage of forest and farmland targeted by Ranch Hand more than tripled, jumping from 23 or two, sorry, 230,000 acres in 1965 to 840,000, and then doubled again to 1.7 million acres in 1967. After spraying 1.3 million acres in 1968. Ranch hand began to taper off, and large-scale defoliation missions ceased in December 1970. So as I've already mentioned, Agent Orange is not water-soluble. It degrades in sunlight, it it clings to soil particles, it gets washed away by rainwater, so even if it was contained in one place during the war, if it was left there um, as much of it was in in the years just after the, the fighting, Um, it would get into the soil and spread through rain, so you've got a much larger affected area. Average dioxin contamination in the soil of industrialized nations, this is just to give you a comparison, of industrialized nations is less than 12 parts per trillion. In Vietnam, researchers have found dioxin levels up to 365,000 parts per trillion at Da Nang, 262,000 parts per trillion on the Bien Ho base, and 236,000 parts per million in former storage areas on the Phuket base. So hundreds of thousands of times larger than what you normally find in an industrialized nation. The United States EPA and a variety of of, um, international NGOs are attempting to clean up hotspots, And they have been doing this since about 2003. But obviously, this is an an enormous problem, and likely it's not going to be solved anytime soon. So, Scott, to your question, these are pictures of defoliated areas. And so when you think about the kinds of of vegetation that it was sprayed on, if it's a dense kind of scrubby uh, vegetation, you're still going to have the branches and maybe some of that to um, use as cover. But a lot of the jungles are of palm-type trees, and so you defoliate that and you don't have much cover left. So, and this also comes to your question earlier, Scott, about um, how effective was it to protect against snipers. Well, the idea that the use of defoliant chemicals would help reduce the vulnerability vulnerability of ground forces to ambush, booby traps, and sniper fire, um, and also the intent to force the NLF into open battle was, of course, wrong. It didn't happen. Many of the men who were deployed in these kinds of Operation Ranch Hand were shot down or shot at from um, by snipers in more heavily forested areas. The idea, of course, though, was to destroy the environment, bring the enemy out into the open, and fight wars the way it's meant to be fought, not behind cover of the jungle, but come out on the battlefield. It just was not a a useful tactic, however, in the end. It was not successful. One of the major uh, targets of 
Agent Orange were mangroves, and this is a, a picture of a mangrove uh, today in Vietnam. Before 1943, there were about 250,000 hectares of mangrove forest in Vietnam, mostly on the coastal areas of the Mekong River Delta. About 159 hectare, hectares of mangroves in this area were seriously uh, devastated by toxic chemicals um, of the U.S. military forces during the time of the war. The tremendous consequences of the destruction of mangrove forests have been encountered um, with difficulties in rehabilitation, biodiversity loss, um, and also it continues to affect the lives and health of communities in the region. So just as some statistics that from scientific studies recently, about 26,000 villages were affected by Operation Ranch Hand and the use of Agent Orange. 86% of those uh, villages were sprayed more than two times and 11% of those villages, so nearly um, 2,600, maybe about 3,000, were sprayed more than 10 times with Agent Orange. Most of the defoliation campaign focused on the destruction of mainland forests and coastal mangroves in the southern part of Vietnam. And the two most affected mangrove forest areas were the Sac Forest outside of Saigon and um, along the Kamu Cape. So a wide swath of destruction with Agent Orange. Here is a picture of um, an area targeted by Agent Orange before and after. So it not only destroys the trees, it also can lead to the calcification of the soil, depending on what soil type it is, or laterization of the soil, meaning it hardens out, it dries out, and becomes infertile. So it's a long-term impact for many of the areas that were affected by Agent Orange. So, Victor, your question about the Geneva Protocol. That was developed in 1925. It was signed by all European powers, but the United States did not sign, um, in part because of a powerful lobbying uh, effort by the U.S. Armed Forces, which did not want to lose a potential weapon or a means of defense, and by the chemical industry. So you had two major lobbying groups working against the U.S. signing and ratification of the Geneva Protocol. Um, the U.S. failed to ratify it, even though it was one of its original proponents, um, and in 1966, the U.S. claimed that uh, it did not use chemical weapons in Vietnam. It instead used chemical agents and not against personnel. So they are not weapons if they are not anti-personnel, used um, for anti-personnel purposes. The U.S. had used chemical agents, including napalm and white phosphorus, in World War II and in Korea to clear forested areas to flush out enemy bunkers, but began using herbicides in Vietnam to clear around bases as defensive measures, then further afield as an offensive strategy, always careful to call it a chemical agent. In response to the United States' actions in Vietnam and its refusal to <coughs> sign the Geneva Protocol, the UN refined its definition in 1967, I believe it was, um, to include any chemical agent used during warfare um, that may be toxic to man, animals, or plants. This is where we get the idea of ecocide, right? So inventing ecocide. Um, the UN certainly debated the parameters of the Geneva Protocol. Scientists in the United States and elsewhere began radicalizing 
um, themselves and organizing themselves and other uh, sympathetic people to their view of the use of chemical agents in war as ecocide. So it's the destruction, the murder of ecosystems, which they rightly claim have larger human impacts. Galston, um, Arthur Galston, who was a plant biologist at Yale, coined the term, compared it to genocide, basically saying that if you destroy the means by which a community can support itself from the natural world, then you are essentially killing them and complicit in their deaths. So Galston and other scientists rallied environmentalists and students alike to protest the war, not only on humanitarian grounds, but on the grounds that environmental destruction was both problematic ecologically and from a humanistic point of view. He argued that science had been, create, had been co-opted by the government and the Defense Department for too long and that it was time for science to work for good, not to create things like Agent Orange, but to create things that would better humanity. The American Association for the Advancement of Science sent a team in, in August 1970 to Vietnam to study the ecological effects of Operation Ranch Hand. This is after years of trying to get there. Finally, in 1970, they were allowed to go. Their report had two major fun, uh, findings. First, that herbicidal spraying had utterly destroyed fully half of Vietnam's mangrove forests and had done irreparable harm to its tropical hardwood forests, which as a result of the spraying were being replaced by invasive bamboo and grasses. In addition, the second point is that widespread tree kills created soil erosion and nutrient dumping. The crop destruction program of Operation Ranch Hand was a failure. I failed to mention that it was not just against forests, trees, mangroves, but also against rice paddies. Eventually, Operation Ranch Hand targeted um, agricultural regions to deny food to the enemy. So the, the crop destruction program of Operation Ranch Hand was a failure, according to um, uh, Zeeler, David Zeeler, because military planners were, were unable to distinguish conclusively between areas under cult, uh, civilian control and areas under guerrilla control. So in essence, they were killing their own allies in order to hopefully undermine support for their enemy. So the result of all of this was a growing distrust of the use of such compounds and an increasing call for their elimination by the American arsenal, from the American arsenal. By 1975, the United States Senate finally ratifies the Geneva Protocol with the provision that the United States could still use riot control agents in humanitarian operations and herbicides around the perimeters of its bases for defensive purposes. In 1977, all the remaining Agent Orange stock was destroyed on um, Johnston Atoll. So basically it was collected from all the bases in Vietnam, all of its storage centers in the United States and around the world um, on U.S. military bases and taken out into the middle of the South Pacific um, where this, this is actually a picture of um, one of the ships used in um, Operation Pacer Ho, which was intended to incinerate all of Agent Orange. These operations were all overseen by EPA agents, and so it was not just the U.S. military um, in charge of this. EPA had to oversee this, and they had to do it out in, these, um, out in the Pacific uh, because they had to have high enough um, fires, hot enough fires to incinerate the, um, the agent down to a, a non-toxic component.
And that's, again, a picture of, of Operation um, Pacer Ho. So this has all probably been pretty depressing in terms of um, the long-lasting environmental and humanitarian legacy of Operation Ranch Hand. There is a little bit of hope um, in terms of the Vietnamese responses to what has um, become the problem that they inherited. In 1978, Ho Chi Minh City created Duyen Hai Forestry Enterprise, so a state-run enterprise, hoping to rehabilitate their mangrove forests. It also established state-owned farms on degraded forest lands to er uh, ease urban pressures. Unfortunately, each of these experiments failed, um, and in 1989, illegal logging cleared most of the remaining forests in the um, area around Ho Chi Minh City. To remediate that problem, the state returned the land to the city, and the city established a Forest Protection and Environmental Management Board, which gave forest allotments to the poor, to local families, in order to manage them. And these efforts have actually been fairly successful. And in 2000, uh, the year 2000, UNESCO recognized the mangrove forests of Kanjiao as a man and biosphere, biosphere reserve. So it's recovered to a, a pretty significant extent. Local families now have solar electricity, adequate clean water, quality fisheries, and sustainable timber. They also have a thriving ecotourism industry. So not to paint the, the war, uh, well, look, isn't this great that all of this came out of that? But if there is going to be a green lining, perhaps, or a silver lining to this, at least it's that there is a local sustainable community that has been able to prosper on lands once destroyed by Agent Orange. So another point to, to this is that while the use of chemical defoliants was certainly a terrible thing, um, the radicalization of scientists and students, as well as others against their use, raised awareness about the serious problems associated with chemical agents and other chemical um, agents' effects on humans and the non-human nature, thus contributing to the growth of the modern environmental movement. So many of the changes, the positive changes that we have seen since Vietnam have been in part due because of the tragedy of Agent Orange. So I'll just leave you with a few parting thoughts here. I think we do need to take a close look at nature within the context of war um, because it does provide new insight into the ways that human conflicts both hinge upon and material affect, materially affect um, landscapes and environments. Certainly what I think I've demonstrated in part today is that nature is as much of a constant enemy or a constant obstacle to um, the, those who are fighting um, as illustrated by the, the voices from the Korean and Vietnam Wars illustrated. And absolutely, war is a human tragedy. We cannot deny that. Um, but it can also be catastrophic for non-human nature, but I would also add that it can also get people thinking about the problems that humans create for themselves and for the environment and might actually generate positive change in the long run. Are there any final questions or comments? Yes, Scott. Yeah, um, <clears throat> what you said and everything about the battling nature, it, it's, it is a constant battle, even here on the home front, uh, with the simple as weeding your lawn. I mean, <laughs> I know that's silly, but the point is that I, what I see is I see nature and man comes in and says, okay, it's in my way. I got to get this out of my way mm -hmm. using whatever means possible. And then saying, okay, 
once again, they want to fall back on nature to reclaim itself to correct the problem that they caused. Yeah. We've seen this in other wars, too, once again, with force and what have you. So, it's, it's, it, yeah, it is a constant battle. It's forever going on. It is. It is. And I think that's an excellent point, Scott, because it reminds us that while humans for millennia have tried to control nature, have tried to conquer it, um, nature has a certain resilience, even in the face of things like the, the onslaught of Operation Ranch Hand, even with white phosphorus and napalm and the strafing of, of bombs and artillery. Um, nature can be resilient, and nature has a power of its own, and that's really the focus of environmental history, right? That's the purpose of our studying it, is to acknowledge that nature has an effect on our human history. Okay, well, that is the end of class today, so I will see you next week. Thank you all very much. If you have other questions, feel free to come up and talk with me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Interested in more history? Check out the second season of C-SPAN's Presidential Recordings podcast. Go behind the scenes with privately recorded phone calls between President Richard Nixon and members of Congress, members of his administration, and even members of his own family. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.